What is memory? The Oxford English Dictionary defines memory as the faculty by which the mind stores and remembers information, or something remembered from the past, a recollection. But the OED doesn't weigh in on the factual accuracy of those recollections, nor does it mention how or where memories are stored. Our current understanding is that they form and are stored in our brains. Our brains, after all, are the motherboards of our bodies. But what if memories could also live somewhere else within us? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who cannot remember what I ate for breakfast, but remembers all the words to the Mr. Ed theme song and word for word what Sally Chowalski said to me in the fourth grade that made me cry. And if you're listening, Sally, no, you are the one with soup breath. This week, we're going to put some tape on the bridges of our glasses and get out our pocket protectors and nerd out over memories. Not so much the content of memories, but rather where the memories live in our bodies. How is it that some people who have received organ transplants will swear their new organ came with memories of its former life with its former owner, even though we know that's impossible? Or do we? We used to know that our veins were filled with air. We used to know the sun revolved around the earth. We used to know James Bond could never be a blonde. But just as sure as Daniel Craig's veins ran with blood as he dominated the James Bond franchise while the earth spun around the sun, there are always things we're discovering about our wider world and our inner one. So let's dive into cellular memory theory. Listen, I'm going to be honest. It turns out the way the brain makes and stores memory is super complicated and involves synapses and neurons and calcium and sodium and magnesium. And I fell asleep while watching a short YouTube video about it. So my understanding of how memories get made and stored is limited to how they explain it in the Pixar movie Inside Out. As explained by Pixar, basically your brain is controlled by five adorable little emotions, and when something happens, a memory ball is formed in the corresponding color of the emotion you felt at the time. And those little memory balls are then kept as a core memory or sent to short or long-term storage. And two little cleaners go through long-term storage regularly and throw away any little memory ball that you don't use anymore. I'm pretty sure that's scientifically accurate. But the main point is, your memories, as far as scientists have been concerned, at least for the last 130 years, are made and stored in your brain. Dr. Santiago Ramon y Callao, who was a pioneering neurosurgeon back around the turn of the 20th century, was like, hey, I think memories are formed in these little connections between neurons. And most people were like, um... What? But brain scientists were like, right on. According to brainfacts.org, quote, your ability to recall the color of your childhood home depends on long-lasting changes in your brain. Forming a new memory requires rerouting nerve fibers and altering synapses, the tiny gaps across which neurons relay chemical messages. The ability of synapses to change or remodel themselves is called synaptic plasticity. 
Encoding a new long-term memory involves persistent changes in the number and shape of synapses, as well as the number of chemical messages sent and molecular docking stations or receptors available to receive the messages, end quote. I apparently have very few receptors left as I can barely remember what I did yesterday, although I'm pretty sure a nap was involved. Anyway. Despite the popular opinion that memories are stored in the brain, which is, after all, the proverbial motherboard of the body, there is a small contingency of scientific folk who believe that memories might be stored somewhere else, or at the very least would like for everyone to be open to the possibility that memories are stored somewhere else. Cellular memory is the theory that memory and personality traits can also be stored in cells throughout the body and in the organs. So things like our taste in music or food or our sexual appetites can be coded inside our hearts or livers or in our appendix, which otherwise appears to have no function whatsoever except to occasionally burst and kill us if we're not careful. Oh, the human body is a wacky place. The folks over at the Skeptic's Dictionary believe the theory of cellular memory comes from the ancient belief in some cultures that eating organs can imbue the eater with the traits associated with that organ. According to the Skeptic Dictionary, some, quote, ancient cultures believed that, quote, eating the heart of a courageous enemy killed in battle would give one strength. The practice of eating various animal organs associated with different virtues, such as longevity or sexual prowess, is one of the more common forms of magical thinking among our earliest ancestors. Even today, some people think that eating brains will make them smarter, end quote. I mean, brains are filled with healthy nutrients, so it stands to reason that eating them might be beneficial. According to Medical News Today, quote, brain meat contains omega-3 fatty acids and nutrients which are good for the nervous system. The antioxidants obtained by eating brain meat are also helpful in protecting the human brain and spinal cord from damage, end quote. Brain meat? So, yeah. Some people think eating brains will make you smarter because healthy food is a key ingredient in being able to learn and get smarter. Listen, I'm not telling you to go eat brains. I don't care what you eat. Like with any alternative theory we explore on this podcast, some people include people with compelling points and wackadoos alike. Also, it bears mentioning that while we tend to equate the practices of cannibalism with so-called ancient cultures, there is ample evidence of human body parts used in medicines all across Europe up into the Victorian era. In fact, in our recent episode on the Mercy Brown vampire incident, we learned about Americans drinking the ashes of organs of an exhumed person to drive the devil out in the 19th century. So, you know, not so ancient cultures. There are also plenty of depictions in popular culture of people taking on the personality traits of their organ or blood donors. The French horror novel Les Mains d'Orlac, Orlac's Hands, about a concert pianist who loses his hands and receives a hand transplant from a murderer and then develops the urge to kill, written in 1920, has been made into at least four films. 
1991 film Body Parts with Jeff Fahey, Captain Lapidus from Lost, is the same concept. And in the 1971 film Brian's Song, a young James Caan gets a blood transfusion that includes some blood from his friend Gale, played by Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian from Star Wars. And when he finds out Gale donated blood to him, he's like, oh, that's why I'm craving chitlins. Yikes, dude. It appears racists got their hands on this cinematic concept, too. But back to science. It's not just in pop culture that stories of personality transference through body parts can be found. According to researcher Mitchell B. Leister of the University of Colorado School of Medicine, quote, the transfer of personality characteristics from one person to another following heart transplantation has been reported for nearly half a century, end quote. Backing up, the first successful heart transplant took place in 1967, but it took a couple more decades for them to figure out how to keep the host body from rejecting the foreign organ, basically killing itself in the process. By the mid-80s, though, heart transplants had become more reliable and patients could expect to live a long and healthy life after receiving a transplanted heart. In his paper, Personality Changes Following Heart Transplantation, The Role of Cellular Memory, Mitchell Leister wrote, quote, Prior to undergoing surgery, some transplant candidates expressed fear they would acquire the personality characteristics or behaviors of their donor, end quote. Which is understandable. The study Leister had pulled from was done in the mid-90s when the procedure was pretty new. And even if it was some firmly established procedure that doctors had been doing for decades, it's understandable that one might be trepidatious when receiving any body part or organ from anyone else, let alone one of the absolute most critical organs. I imagine there would have been a whole host of fears. Among them, what if the donor was a Nazi? Leister continued... Quote, Although such concerns were labeled irrational, numerous transplant recipients described experiencing such changes following surgery, and these changes occurred despite strong prohibitions against sharing information with recipients about their donors. End quote. A 1992 paper called Does Changing the Heart Mean Changing Personality? A Retrospective Inquiry on 47 Heart Transplant Patients by authors B. Bunzel, B. Schmidl-Moll, and G. Wolinek describes a study of 47 heart transplant recipients in Austria. A vast majority of the very small pool of participants reported no changes in their personality. 15% said their personalities had changed a bit after surgery, but didn't equate it with their new heart. And 6% three whole people, quote, reported a distinct change of personality due to their new hearts, end quote. Another study published in the Israel Journal for Psychiatry-Related Science in 1994 reported 34% of the study participants, of which there were a whopping 35 people, quote, entertained the possibility of acquiring qualities of the donor via the new heart, end quote. So while Dr. Leister acknowledges, quote, the traditional neuroscientific view is that memory is a function of the brain, not the heart, rendering such a transfer of memory unlikely at best, or even more credibly impossible, end quote, he believes in the possibility that memories and some personality traits can be transferred to organ recipients and that further research is needed. 
So let's meet one of these heart recipients who claims to have the memories of the person who had her heart before her. In 1997, Claire Sylvia, a former professional dancer from New England, published a memoir recounting her experience after receiving a heart and lung transplant when she was 48 years old. Sylvia claimed that after getting the new heart and lungs, she began to get cravings for things she never craved before. Sylvia was the first person in New England to successfully receive a heart and lung transplant, so the press showed up to her hospital a few days after to cover her story. In her book, A Change of Heart, Sylvia recounts a reporter asking her, now that you've had this miracle, what do you want to do more than anything else? She wrote, Actually, I said, I'm dying for a beer right now. As soon as those words came out of my mouth, I wished I could pull them back in. I was mortified that I had answered this sincere question with such a flippant response. I was also surprised because I didn't even like beer. At least I had never before. But the craving I felt at that moment was specifically for the taste of beer. For some bizarre reason, I was convinced that nothing else in the world would quench my thirst. She began to wonder if maybe the person who'd hosted her new organs before her had liked beer, and if maybe somehow she had inherited this new taste for beer from them. After the thing with the beer, Sylvia started to notice other things that weren't really a part of her personality before her surgery. She told Fox News that she'd found she had more confidence and she was in better health and better shape than she'd been before. Her daughter noticed the way she walked had become, quote, very manly. And Sylvia said that while she was still attracted to men, she didn't feel the same need to have a boyfriend as she'd had before the surgery. And then the dreams started coming. She dreamt about a tall young man with sandy hair that she associated with the name Tim L. She didn't know who this man was, but she said, I woke up knowing that Tim L. was my donor and that some parts of his spirit and personality were now within me. And then, nine months later, she dreamt about him again. This time, she felt compelled to find out if her dream was right. But back in the 80s, hospitals never disclosed any information about donors to recipients. And even after Sylvia said the name Tim L. to the hospital's transplant coordinator, they wouldn't cough up the goods. But then, a friend looked up obituaries of people named Tim with the last initial L in New England around the time of Sylvia's surgery and found a Tim Lamarandi. For some reason, his address was listed in his obituary? The 80s, man. Sylvia wrote to Tim's family, and they were more than happy to meet with the woman who had been given a second lease on life with the gift their son had given her in his death. And wouldn't you know it, Tim's family confirmed all the things Sylvia had felt as having been personality traits of Tim. Fox News asked her if she thought she would have been different had she received a woman's heart and lungs. And Sylvia said, Because every person has their own set of memories imbued in the heart. And when they're transferred, their memories become part of the recipient's persona. I definitely would have been different. And how did she know Tim L. was her donor just from her dreams? Sometimes you just know. It's just what you believe. Especially if you're a spiritual person. You can't see love, you can't touch it, you can't smell it. But you know there is love there. It just depends on what you believe. 
which all sounds really cool and pretty magical, until you learn that Sylvia had overheard a nurse just after her surgery say the donor was an 18-year-old boy who died in a motorcycle accident. And if you don't think that throws a wah-wah over the whole thing, let me point out that it's not a huge stretch to imagine that an 18-year-old kid who likes to drive motorcycles might also like beer. Beer is a pretty ubiquitous drink for teen boys to like. Knowing that, the question the Fox News person should have asked her instead of would you be different if your donor had been a woman should have been, do you think there's any chance you wouldn't have changed at all if you hadn't overheard your nurse saying your donor was an 18-year-old boy who died in a motorcycle accident? I will admit that dreaming of the name Tim L. and having the name of her donor be Tim Lamorandi is pretty neat. Then again, it's entirely possible she saw his obituary around the time of her surgery and didn't remember, or that she didn't even realize she saw it. But Sylvia claimed that it happened to her again when in 1998 she suddenly developed a fondness for cooking after receiving a kidney transplant. She told Fox News... I started baking and making things for him that I hadn't done before. He said, you cook just like my mother used to. But before you go, whoa, man, trippy, I should tell you the he here was her donor slash ex-boyfriend slash former ballroom dance partner. Needless to say, she had information to work off of. So again, not really that trippy at all. First of all, wanting to cook for the person who saved your life is not that mind-blowing. Second of all, people pick up new hobbies all the time. I suddenly started making little garden gnomes out of oven-baked clay, and all my organs are my own. And also, a lot of people cook like other people's mothers. I cook like a whole bunch of people who learn to cook from watching Julia Child. You know? Not that weird. Perhaps a more remarkable story is the one that comes from Dr. Paul Pearsall's 1998 book, The Heart's Code. Pearsall was a licensed clinical neuropsychologist and adjunct clinical professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and researched and wrote about the theory of cellular memory. He wrote about speaking to an international group of mental health professionals, and after seeing his speech, a psychiatrist came up to the mic to share an experience she'd had with a young client. He said the psychiatrist was sobbing so uncontrollably while she spoke that he had trouble understanding her. Nevertheless, he quotes her this way. I have a patient, an eight-year-old little girl, who received the heart of a murdered 10-year-old girl. Her mother brought her to me when she started screaming at night about her dreams of the man who had murdered her donor. She said her daughter knew who it was. After several sessions, I just could not deny the reality of what this child was telling me. Her mother and I finally decided to call the police and using the descriptions from the little girl, they found the murderer. He was easily convicted with evidence my patient provided. The time, the weapon, the place, the clothes he wore. What the little girl he killed had said to him. Everything the little heart transplant recipient reported was 
completely accurate. Of course, this story doesn't seem to exist anywhere but in Dr. Pearsall's book, and one would think a story like this would have been heavily covered by the media, so perhaps not that remarkable after all. Anyway, Pearsall came to the study of cellular memory and the theory that other organs besides the brain could have and hold thoughts when he was experiencing weakness, headaches, and profuse night sweats. He said he felt an inexplicable feeling of doom and decay. His doctors brushed his symptoms off as stress from working too much. In his book, he wrote, My brain accepted their diagnosis, but my heart remained very worried. As weeks went on, I became constantly nauseated. Food repulsed me, and my every move was accompanied by severe pain that radiated from my pelvis and often knocked me to my knees. I often began to cry for no apparent reason and was plagued by a vague sense of dread that I kept telling my family seemed to be my heart crying. I told my doctors that despite their dismissal of my symptoms as being only in my head, it was my heart that kept telling me I was dying. My brain wanted to listen to my doctor's brains, but my heart seemed to keep urging me to continue making appeals to my doctor that something was terribly wrong. His doctor finally relented and gave him a CAT scan to put his mind at ease. But... During the CAT scan, the doctors and nurses behind the screen had their first glimpse of a soccer ball-sized tumor in my hip and cancer cells that my heart had warned me had been taking over my body for months. I was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma, a deadly form of cancer of the lymph system. At this point, it had spread into my bones, and I had very little chance of surviving. Had I put more trust in my heart's code, and had my doctors been more willing to listen to its lessons, I might have avoided more than two years of terrible suffering. This dude spent two years telling his doctors something was wrong, with them dismissing him? This feels more like a story about grounds for a medical negligence lawsuit than someone's heart sending them messages. My mother, who wrote about women's health for a living and was into Eastern medicine and the concept of being in tune with one's own body, was completely unaware that she had late-stage colon cancer until the doctors found a grapefruit-sized tumor on her colon. Why didn't her heart warn her? She seems like a pretty good candidate for someone who would receive telegrams from her own body telling her something was wrong. Maybe this guy's heart wasn't telling him he was sick. Maybe him being sick was telling him he was sick. I don't know. Just a guess. I went through a period of time where I was having a weird, automatic, involuntary, compulsive thought of getting stabbed repeatedly in my right kidney. The thought became so constant and overwhelming that I thought maybe my kidney was trying to tell me something was wrong with it. I explained this to the doctor, and she ran a bunch of tests, and nothing was wrong with my kidney. Clearly something was wrong with my brain, but not my kidney. Maybe my kidney was trying to tell me to get my damn head checked? Anyway... 
Pearsall went on to interview 150 transplant recipients for his research, trying to gather more evidence of cellular memory. In 2002, he published an article titled Changes in Heart Transplant Recipients that Parallel the Personalities of Their Donors, which highlighted 10 cases. There was the case of the boy who composed poems and music who died in an automobile accident. A year after he died, his parents found a tape of a song he'd recorded entitled Danny, My Heart is Yours, in which he said that he, quote, felt he was destined to die and give his heart to someone, end quote. Turns out the woman who received his heart was named Danielle, and when the donor's parents played their son's music for her, she supposedly could finish the phrases. So I guess that's a case in which not only is there cellular memory, but there's also apparently cellular ESP? Then there's the seven-month-old who got a heart from a 16-month-old who'd had cerebral palsy mostly on the left side and who, after getting the heart, developed stiffness and shaking on his left side. When he was a toddler, he apparently ran up to a stranger, climbed in his lap, and called him daddy. Turned out, the man was his donor's father. When the little boy's father asked him why he'd done that, the little boy said it wasn't him that did it. It was Jerry the boy whose heart he'd apparently gotten. I mean, look, I don't know how to explain that one away, okay? There was the 29-year-old junk food-loving lesbian who received the heart of a straight vegetarian woman and suddenly found meat disgusting and fell in love with a man. Look, I've known plenty of lesbians who eventually married men. That's not, like, unheard of. Hell, even I thought I was done with men. The thought of being with a man ever again made me want to vomit. And here I am, happily married to a man. And yes, I also used to be a vegetarian. And now I'm not. So... But my favorite slash the worst one is the white guy who hated classical music who received the heart of a young black man who played the violin. After his surgery, the white man suddenly loved classical music. Side note, he told Pearsall he had trouble accepting that his new heart once belonged to a black man, but that he wasn't racist because most of his friends at work were black. Awesome. His wife then went on to tell Pearsall that in addition to expressing his newfound classical music taste by listening to it for hours on end, he also invited over his black co-workers more often, appearing to, quote, not see their color anymore, end quote. Dear listeners, that is not a change of heart. It's a racist framework for someone inviting over their co-workers. And I include it here to test Pearsall's credibility a bit. It is my job. Why did he include this case in his research? It's a pretty clear example of confirmation bias at its best. I'm just going to leave all that there and back away slowly. The last one I'll tell you about is the money-driven, type-A, overweight businessman who, after receiving a new heart in February of 2000, became a medal-winning athlete and wanted to start a charitable foundation and suddenly loved the singer Sade, whom he'd never heard of before. Now, that's super easy to explain. The dude almost died, got a new lease on life, started taking better care of his body, and realized that money isn't that important and helping others is. Pretty standard. 
But what I can't reason away is how a full-grown man didn't know who Sade was in the year 2000. Smooth operator? No ordinary love? The sweetest taboo? By your side? Come on. Had this man never sat in a doctor's waiting room before? Had this man never had the need to look up songs to cry to on Google? Anyway. Okay, now that we've had a fun trip down weird transplant story lane, let's get back to the science. I know, I know, science, yuck. But I promise I'll try to make you laugh. The majority of those in the scientific community think of cellular memory as junk science, mostly because there's nowhere near enough evidence for it, and there's no way so far to prove any of it. The studies that show evidence of cellular memory, detractors say, are biased and participants are chosen to prove the researcher's hypothesis. For example, Pearsall's paper presents 10 cases, but that's from a pool of 150 participants. I'm no statistician, but that doesn't seem like great evidence. If you want to tell me that nearly half the participants inherited memories from their donors, I'll buy you a drink and we can chat. But six and a half percent? I'm not even going to buy you a cup of coffee over six and a half percent. A 1992 study done by the University of Melbourne puts it this way, quote, 1,242 organ transplants were performed in Australia in 2015 alone, so the small number of reported cases of personality changes due to organ transplants in history worldwide raises doubts about the validity of cellular memory, end quote. That was also the paper that interviewed 47 transplant recipients and only found three people, or 6%, who reported any changes in behavior. Anyone who's ever had the pleasure of listening to a conspiracy theorist tell you that there's a cabal of lizard people that live underground and eat children will know that you can find evidence for anything you want if you look hard enough, bend the facts, and are willing to connect dots that have no business being connected. However, there are some possible scientific explanations that could point to the existence of cellular memory. In 1994, Dr. Andrew Armour, a neuroradiologist, theorized that the heart has a brain of its own in the form of the nervous system. Anyone who's ever felt their heart rate increase while watching a scary movie can tell you that even though their brain knows the danger isn't real, their nervous system acts on its own. Dr. Armour believed that the nervous system could be responsible for the transfer of memory from organ donor to recipient. Another theory is about neuropeptides, which are like little messengers released from the brain that communicate with the rest of the body. Apparently, neuropeptides have been found in some hearts, which could also help explain memory transfer. And then there's something about the magnetic field, which I completely do not understand, so I will just quote it from an article titled Memory Transference in Organ Transplant Recipients from the Journal of New Approaches to Medicine and Health, and let you do what you will with it. Quote, cells in the heart have a unique magnetic property and respond to and interact with magnetic fields. There may be an as yet undiscovered electromagnetic connection between the brain and heart expressed in a form of energy that contains some level of cellular memory. End quote. 
And then there's more metaphysical theories having to do with the spirit and the soul, which intersects with remembering past life experiences. The article from the Journal of New Approaches to Medicine and Health says, quote, if plants and inanimate objects can store our feelings and thoughts, it is possible that our body organs, which are more intimately connected to us, also contain our emotional imprints. What kind of plants do those guys have and where can I get one? Could you imagine being able to whisper your secrets to a plant for safekeeping? I mean, you totally could do that, but imagine later on being able to go back and be like, hey, Peace Lily Tomlin, remind me what I told you about my ex five years ago before I drunk text them again. There is some quantifiable science in the form of a study on sea slugs that some information is stored within the neuron's cell body. Apparently, researchers at UCLA found they could erase a sea slug's long-term memory, which I guess they gauged by then asking the sea slug, now tell me about your mother. And the sea slug was like, my who? But then the memory, quote, reformed with only a small reminder stimulus, again suggesting that some information was being stored in a neuron's body, end quote. Because then the slug was like, oh, my mother, man, that lady just oozed charm. Thank you. The principal investigator on the sea slug study uses the analogy that if Chopin had lost his fingers, he would still know how to play sonatas. He wouldn't be able to, obviously, but he would still know how to. This doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how it proves that memories live in the cells. It seems to me the argument should be that if Chopin had his brain removed, he would still know how to play his sonatas because the memories lived in his hands? Another confusing aspect of all this is that I was under the impression that our cells are all new every seven years or so. So it seems to me the bigger question is, how do any of us have memories older than seven years? Clearly, I do not understand basic biology. That's okay. I have other talents, such as... Uh... Anyway... I don't know whether people really remember other people's memories after their cells get mixed together. It is hard to imagine that who we are, the essential self that each of us is, is of the human body. I just think of these bodies as cars our selves drive around in. I guess it is possible that these flesh suits would retain some residue of our being once we were no longer in residence there. Like how when you repot a plant, soil and roots and leaves might get left behind in the old pot. Sometimes there is even enough of that stuff for that same kind of plant to take root all over again, if the conditions are just right. So maybe that is what is happening with cellular memory? I'll say it again, strangers. I don't know. I only know the human body, mind and spirit are mysterious. If you don't remember anything else after this, remember that. And then maybe you'll donate blood and someone else can remember it too. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. For the last episode of season two. Can you believe it? I can't. 
Most serial killers get forgotten over time, even the worst ones, but it usually takes a century or so to forget them. The doodler, on the other hand, was one that most of us seemed all too eager to forget within only a few decades. We have a lot of bizarre and fascinating stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a topic for something you'd like to have us cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Andrea Jones Sojola, and Ryan Garcia. Come see Strange live on tour in New York City, Boston, and D.C. Check out the website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, for details and tickets. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 